best laid plans can be ruined by insufficient um, thought given to how you allocate your time. Um, and I find the same thing in the business world. So those that tend to be perfectionists, those that tend to want to deliver their absolute best, quite often run out of time or deliver projects late. Hello, and welcome back to Corvinus Business Intelligence. We're so excited today to continue our discussion on the synergies, the relationships between the world of chess and the world of business. And we're delighted to have back with us today to address this topic, Norbert Fogarashi, Managing Director at Morgan Stanley and Head of Morgan Stanley Hungary. Norbert's also a member of the Hungarian Chess Federation and is intensively involved in the Global Chess Festival. My name is Theodore Boone, and I am a member of the faculty of Corvinus University's School of Business in Budapest, Hungary. My co-host for today's program is Chris Chordash, a student in our business school. As we begin today's episode, I would definitely like to thank our sponsors who distribute and sponsor our podcast, the Budapest Business Journal, Hungary's practical business biweekly since 1992, and unilife.hu. With between 25 and 50,000 daily real users, unilife.hu is a leading platform in Hungary on higher education. Norbert, thank you again for being with us back here today. No, it's great to be back then. Norbert, I'd like to continue our discussion on the issue of time pressure in the chess world and in the business world. You know, it's interesting for me, I certainly have time pressure at work very often. Um, But when I go home, I actually like to play chess with my kids quite a bit. And my youngest son in particular, who's uh, about 14 now, he really always wants to use the chess clock. And I say, no, I've had enough time pressure during the day at work. I don't want to use the chess clock in the evening, but he wants to use the chess clock. So I'd welcome your, your thoughts on the relationship between time pressure in chess and time pressure in the business world. No, thanks, Ted. That's a fascinating topic and one that, one that I've been thinking about quite a lot. I myself am quite prone to time pressure in my own chess game. And I feel that that's actually uh, has been an inhibitor to me reaching higher, you know, higher peaks in my chess career and in my uh, chess progress uh, because I tend to get into time pressure. I tend to eat up a lot of time thinking through the positions. And I think that's probably related to my scientific approach to the game, where in any position, I try to find the best move. And this, uh, you know, noble pursuit of perfectionism, um, you know, comes up against fairly um, basic, uh, practical limitations in in the chess game, where quite often I find myself, you know, having only five minutes left on my clock and still needing to make 10 or 15 moves. So all of a sudden I need to switch into blitz mode or scramble mode and make suboptimal moves and the whole plan is out the window. So a a very best laid plans can be ruined by insufficient um, thought given to how you allocate your time. Um, And I find the same thing in the business world. So those that tend to be perfectionists, those that tend to want to deliver their absolute best, quite often run out of time or deliver projects late or deliver presentations late. You know, um, they it's not no fault of their own. It's a it's a personality uh, trait, whereas people who are more um, 
let's say, uh, intuitive um, or people who are, who, and, and I find this interchangeable as well, who are more creative, uh, intuitive. They don't necessarily calculate everything to the end. Uh, they just throw out some good ideas and they can do that really quickly. Um, and some of the, the most uh, inspiring chess players in the history of the game have been of that ilk. So if you to mention one world champion, Mikhail Tal from Latvia, he was a crazy attacking style player who would play these, now we have proven to be unsound sacrifices, um, but was were really entertaining and he was truly successful and truly spectacular. And quite often his opponents would... Uh, uh, would, would not make the best moves because they would be overwhelmed by these ideas. Um, uh, sadly, now that computers can actually analyze games almost perfectly, we, we see a lot of these uh, sacrifices in hindsight were not fully correct. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. We were talking uh, in the earlier podcast, but I'd like to expand on a bit, um, this concept of pattern recognition which you had described as something um, that is useful both in the chess world and the business world. If you could expound on, on um, that issue uh, for us a bit. Absolutely. And it ties very nicely to time pressure because those players who have played more recently, so when you're in play, you're in practice. And in chess, much like in any other sport, you actually need to train and be in practice when you go to competitions, you know. Uh, I used to smile and, you know, fellow kids used to ask me, what are you doing? Are you lifting the pawns and knights during chess training? Uh, is that how you practice? No. You look at positions and you look at games of the best players in the world um, to look at what opening patterns and what middle game patterns they have used. And um, what this helps you with is it actually makes you faster when you're calculating lines and you're calculating positions and variations in real over-the-board chess games. Um, and that way you can also avoid time pressure because you're more quickly recognizing patterns. Quite often, higher ranked players will defeat lower ranked opponents, not because they see more or calculate more accurately, but because they recognize these patterns more quickly. And they're able to discount variations or branches of calculations altogether more uh, freely. So remember how I, I told you, you can build a tree of variations from any other, any given position. Well, the top ranked players have much smaller trees in their heads because they, just by looking at that particular pattern, they see it's not going to end well. So I'm not even going to bother analyzing that particular move or sequence of moves. Um, now, in today's data-driven financial world, pattern recognition is also key. So technology, including machine learning and AI, can offer valuable help. But we do need the human input and oversight. Um, it's absolutely vital. And that's our approach to this in Morgan Stanley as well. Uh, my team in Budapest actually plays a major role in uh, the application of this AI software that's used by over 10,000 financial analysts in North America called Next Best Action, which, uh, you know, given the fast moving markets and uh, the big client base will tell a financial advisor based on machine learning and AI what, is, what they should be doing next. Um, now, it's great, and, um, and it's good that the computer gives you such advice in a complex environment, but you still need that human input of, okay, hold on, you're recommending me to call that particular client, but I happen to know that that client had a serious life event, which uh, it wouldn't be a good idea to call him just now. So this is what I mean by some kind of a hybrid of uh, artificial intelligence and uh, pattern recognition aided by computers 
but actually given some kind of a human supervision is what leads to um, the, the most optimal solutions. Fascinating, fascinating. Chris, I know you have a bunch of questions, so please go ahead. Yeah, I would like to circle back and uh, ask a question about the perfect start. Would you consider having perfect first moves as the key to winning? Or, or how, how would you define that? Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at a chess game and the preparation of a chess player for a serious game, you break the game into three pieces. Chess openings, which is what you're talking about, the start of the game. The middle game, where it's all about calculation and strategy and strategizing. And then the end game, where again, it's back to pre-game preparation. Uh, so if we're down to you know, a few number of pieces, uh, those are uh, parts of the game that you can practice very concretely and very definitely before the game. Uh, so chess opening is in fact probably uh, the biggest part of a serious player's preparation. Um, so knowing chess variations and openings, um, sometimes even up to 20 move pairs, um, analyzing it that deeply and being prepared for various um, uh, uh, replies of your opponent can give you a huge advantage. Um, sometimes some players have been known to win games, even at the top level, just by pre-game preparation. Uh, they've, they've come to such a position by preparing for, um, uh, you know, analyzing the opponent's games that they've basically beaten them even before the game. So absolutely, it's a huge part of the game. And some speculate that it's in some ways a downfall of the top game, um, uh, the top uh, echelons of chess games, because they are putting so much effort and so much preparation into the game, it really becomes uninteresting. Um, and a high percentage of the games end up in draws because both players are so well prepared. They find, uh, uh, you know, attacks and counterattacks even before the game. So this can be overdone and this can be taken to a point where some people say it's actually killing the game. Um, for my own um, style and my own perspective, I never had too much time to devote to the game. Obviously, I was pursuing a professional career and my own studies. So I quite like playing sidelines, so not the main lines where it's analyzed very deeply for a very high number of moves, but rather try to find offbeat variations, which are still playable, but not necessarily the best moves, where I'm better uh, prepared than my opponent. Um, now, with the advent of chess databases, where you know, most competitive games are actually recorded and are uploaded into a central database, Offbeat, people who play offbeat openings are more and more caught out because their opponents are aware that they're playing this suboptimal sideline. They can prepare for it, and therefore, you know, they they don't, um, uh, you know, they don't be as successful with it as people who play main lines. So this was actually one of the main reasons why I quit competitive chess four or five years ago because I found just the amount of effort or time that's required to maintain my openings and, and stay abreast of opening um, novelties and uh, preparations is just prohibitive. And how are you at Morgan Stanley with this? Are you trying to make your first moves always flawless in your work um, when facing a new problem or just staying creative in your own way and doing what you can do best? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I would almost 
uh, rather than new projects, I would say when meeting new people, what is the first impression that you make? How much preparation you make? Um, and my my strategy has always been to try and give myself as I am uh, and present myself as I am. Of course, you need to do some preparations for uh, project meetings, for meeting a new client, um, even when uh, you're interviewing, right? New prospective employees, um, you know, they are doing some preparation, but I also have the benefit of, uh, of their um, professional background. So I can also do some preparations. And yes, I am of the scientific type. So I like to do prep. Uh, but not overdo it. Um, and it's very important to, to remain natural and give, um, uh, give of yourself and not try to learn a behavior that's not you. I think authenticity is, uh, is the key in that balance. It's interesting you were referring earlier to the relationship or the contrast perhaps between intuition, whether it's chess or business and a more logical approach. But sometimes I wonder whether what one thinks one is acting on intuition, but is really on the basis of preparation that has been so careful and so thorough and so broad uh, that you yourself don't even know uh, and you feel like it's intuition, um, which perhaps one might say is the best of, uh, best of both uh, worlds. I, I definitely like to uh, look at in, in more detail the relationships between Chess and Morgan Stanley sort of in everyday life. Because I understand that, that you have kind of brought a lot of the chess world into Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley. So I'd, I'd really love to hear more about that. Absolutely. Yeah, so, um, so I was a chess player joining Morgan Stanley and I enjoyed the game. And as I, um, I, the first step was I started uh, finding other like-minded people within the company. Um, we've set up a chess club uh, in the Budapest office, but um, actually all over the world, there were chess clubs forming almost independently of me in other offices, whether that be in India or in New York or out in Asia. Um, we actually very quickly established kind of this global network of chess enthusiasts uh, within the company. And initially, we started out with just chess competitions within the Budapest office and chess ladders um, where we would play games uh, against each other. But then already 10 years ago, uh, we said, wow, wouldn't this be more exciting to do um, on a global scale? And it started out actually with a chess match between the Budapest uh, chess players and the India chess players. Um, and uh, that went so well that the following year... May I ask who won? <laughs> yes, uh, we ended up winning uh, in that one against uh, against India, but um, but it was a close fought match. And the following year, we set up a global competition, and to our surprise, there were five or six different offices already entering a team into that competition. So it was great to discover all these uh, all these chess players all over the world. And then over the years, so we we have held that competition for the eighth time last year. We Morgan Stanley globally celebrated its 85th anniversary uh, last year, and we actually we managed to organize a chess competition with 85 participants uh, from all over the world uh, to commemorate that that event. And um, uh, the event uh, was actually won by an international master who's originally from uh, Georgia, the former uh, Soviet Republic, but uh, now residing in the U.S., uh, working for our wealth management business. But we also had um, um, somebody who was born in the Ukraine, but working out of our New York office in the finals. We also had a Japanese champion who played in the Chess Olympiad, representing Japan uh, for five times in the finals. 
Um, and we also had a candidate master from Baltimore. Um, so it was a, a very diverse crowd in the finals of this, of this event. But actually we find we can use tests uh, to also reach out within Hungary to, uh, to students, for example. Uh, we connect with some of our local universities um, because we each year for the Budapest office, we hire up to 300 interns um, and over 100 fresh graduates who join us full time from the universities. Um, so we've organized an annual chess match against the University of Seged on, on eight boards. So eight players from the university and eight players from Morgan Stanley ever since 2011. And it's been a very, very close fought match. After nine years, um, Morgan Stanley is leading that competition five to four. But each year is a, is a struggle, is a, is a good, good battle. Chris, please go ahead. I know that you like chess players. I know that you would like recruit them without even looking at their resume if they're really good because <laughs> they, they're going to learn the work anyway. Um, so I would like to ask if at the Global Chess Festival, do you see it as a potential recruitment? Is that why Morgan Stanley is sponsoring it? Yeah, so uh, regarding uh, Judith Polgar's Global Chess Festival, we, we got acquainted with it about two years ago. Um, and um, the main reason why we sponsored it is because we saw that the values that it represents and the goals it has are very, very closely aligned to what Morgan Stanley stands for. Uh, so things like um, inspiring the next generation of analytical thinkers or getting more women into chess or getting more girls into chess and more broadly into science, technology, engineering, and math. So the STEM fields is something that we feel very strongly about. And, and Judith, Judith also feels very strongly about this. Also associating the values of chess. So what I mentioned about science, the artistic beauty, um, we didn't speak about the chess as an educational tool, which is also a very important aspect we can cover later. These are all things that we feel strongly about um, as Morgan Stanley. We want it associated with our brand in the local market and UDIT is, is spot on representing all of these same values. So really that's, that was the core reason it wasn't so much a direct recruiting uh, event. Of course, we're out there meeting students mostly, um, whether it be high school students or university students who attend the event. We organized some sessions specifically for them, some related to um, chess puzzles and math and chess uh, type things, some related to chess and programming uh, type uh, um, activities. So we do find it um, that we, we attract and we're interesting to, to exactly the type of um, uh, students who will make uh, great future employees, but that's not really the primary purpose um, in terms of direct pipelining. And, and maybe uh, we should back up a little bit and just talk a little bit more about what the Global Chess Festival is. I understand that the next one is going to take place on October 9th. I know I'm looking forward to that, and I believe it's going to be a combination of hybrid and hopefully live. So I'd like to hear more about that. Um, and uh, maybe uh, you could talk a little bit more about Judith Pogar uh, in particular. Uh, for those of our listeners who are not uh, deeply familiar with um, the Pogar sisters, uh, one of the highlights of my life was I played in a simultaneous match uh, with uh, Zsuzsa Pogar, Susan Pogar. That is, she was playing 12, 15 people at once. I had absolutely no business sitting on the opposite side of a chessboard 
with her, and I don't have to say who won, uh, but it was certainly a great honor uh, for me. Um, but it would, it would be great to hear a little bit more about the, the, the festival, the plans for this coming year, um, and uh, Judith's role in that. Absolutely, yeah. Susan Polgar is a women's world champion, so clearly uh, um, a very, very strong chess player. But it's not just her, but Judith um, and Sophia, so all three sisters, are very strong chess players. And I think most of our listeners will know that they actually won an Olympic gold medal for Hungary um, a couple of times. Um, and they're really the, uh, the pride of our nation from a chess perspective. Um, Judith actually achieved the greatest um, uh, uh, feat um, of the three of them, cracking into the top 10 amongst the men something that, that was thought um, you know, unachievable uh, by, by, by any woman um, at the peak of her career. Um, and, um, and actually, it was funny because I met Judith under very similar circumstances to, uh, to, to how, what you just explained. Um, shortly after moving back to Hungary in 2007, it was just a chance encounter. I was uh, strolling through um, uh, the lobby of the hotel I was staying at, and I peeked into this big board, big boardroom um, or, or ballroom rather, um, um, and it was full of chess boards. And I'm like, wow, this is interesting. I play chess. What's going on here? It turns out that afternoon was uh, Judith Polgar's uh, uh, chess festival uh, at that venue. Um, and I somehow managed to, um, to sneak into the simul myself and play against Judith um, um, as well, which is a, a fantastic experience for me um, uh, also. And um, so that's how I, I, I first uh, met Judith. And um, uh, it's, it's interesting because I mentioned we have a number of strong players at Morgan Stanley. And about three years ago, we decided to challenge the Hungarian women's national team to a match. And this was just before a chess Olympiad. So they were very happy to accept our challenge because they were preparing for the Olympiad. Um, and we gave them a good match. They beat us, right? The Hungarian women's national team. Um, but um, it was a close match. Uh, this is a couple of years ago, which was a great showing. They were only, um, you know, seeded, um, um, I think, outside of the top 15. So uh, they, they punched well above their weight in that competition. And on the back of that, and, and we actually asked Judith to be the, the main sponsor of that event and come along to the event. We called it the chess picnic. We played it in, uh, uh, in the park outside of our offices. It generated a lot of media attention, a lot of um, attention from uh, prospective uh, employees, and it turned out fantastic. And that's when we said, this is a great event. It took a lot of effort to organize it. Um, we would like to sponsor a similar event that occurs on an ongoing basis. And this is how we agreed with Judith to be the main sponsors of uh, her chess festival, um, which has, has now happened uh, uh, 10 times. And we have now become the main sponsor of it. And we have just signed uh, to be the sponsor for three more years. That's fantastic. And, and well, I, let me ask you, uh, Norba, one more question. Um, coming back to the this concept of concentration and the relationship between concentration in chess and concentration in, in, in business or, or work, which I found fascinating. Um, sometimes when I'm at my best, I really feel I'm sort of locked in, right? Whether I'm trying to play chess or, or in my work, when you can lock in kind of everything that's going around you sort of disappears, even if there's noise and, and or other things perhaps you should also be thinking about 
Um, is that one of the areas that you find chess useful and helpful to you, uh, both in chess and in your work? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and to answer this, I think I really want to go back to what chess is. And there's some debate over this, right? Is chess a sport? Uh, is it a fight? Is it a, well, it's a strategic game of skill? We all agree on that. More and more, it's turning into an e-sport, right? There are more and more um, uh, streamers who are streaming um, uh, their own content. Also, uh, top events are being broadcast over the internet now. Um, there are matches and tournaments, and players clearly require extreme concentration, to your point, that um, physical endurance and stamina during these fights. So from that perspective, you can absolutely consider it to be a sport. I also covered how you can um, consider chess to be a science, trying to look for the best move and scientifically analyze any given position. I spoke briefly about how chess is actually an art. Some positions and studies and puzzles are clearly artistic and, uh, and they give you a sense of beauty when you look at them and you're able to solve them. But also chess is an educational tool. It's used broadly as an educational tool in schools from Canada to India to China through Hungary and Russia. It's also used as a therapy or prevention for various neurotic conditions such as Alzheimer's or dementia for old age. Um, um, to, to give you a quote from Siegbert Tarasch, who's one of the top chess players in the early 20th century, chess, like music, like love, has the power to make men happy. Um, chess is a form Can of you intellectual- you just repeat that again? It's so good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it goes, chess, like music, like love, has the power to make men happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we can all agree, another quote from Tarash, chess is a form of intellectual product- productiveness. Mm-hmm. Intel- intellectual productiveness is one of the greatest joys if not the greatest one of human existence. And most importantly, chess has a universal appeal and is such an accessible game all over the world. Not many games exist where a five-year-old child can compete on level terms with a middle-aged woman or a hundred-year-old man. So hence the Global Chess Festival's motto that chess connects us. That is a a wonderful way to end. this second episode of our discussion with Norbert Fogarashi on the relationships between chess and the world of business. Unfortunately, we have run out of time and I would very much like to thank my co-host, Chris Chordash. And most of all, I would really like to thank you, Norbert Fogarashi, Managing Director at Morgan Stanley and Head of Morgan Stanley Hungary for this great conversation. Listeners, please come back for part three of our discussion with Norbert. And we leave you today with these words of Benjamin Franklin. An investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Thank you.